Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Colossians chapter 1. The text that's printed in the bulletin is uh, verses 15 through 23. We'll probably start in verse 13 just for the reading. So if you have a Bible, that'd be helpful, or you can pick one up on the back table there. There's also stuff available for the kids to do, uh, help them focus a little bit by coloring or whatnot. So we started a new series on Colossians. We started last week. uh, Kind of the subtitle of the series is Growing in the Gospel. That's what the book is about. Uh, It's a letter written to a young church like ours. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote it. Uh, It's really written to to young believers and to new believers um, with encouragement for them about how to grow in the faith. So some more background than I gave you last week. Uh, Paul pretty much constantly encountered opposition everywhere that he went. He had um, people of all sorts that were uh, plaguing him, in a sense, plaguing his his ministry, Jews and pagans, um, who were set in their ways, uh, set against the gospel, and they would go so far as to follow him from city to city uh, or move into a city after he had left. Uh, they would they would um, beat him or have him imprisoned. Um, and they tried to lead the church astray from the gospel that he was proclaiming, right, from the, the true gospel. And um, so he is always right. I mean, most of his letters have something to do with kind of uh, correcting false teaching, right? He's writing to firm Christians up against um, these folks who are set against him and they're teaching other things. Uh, He's writing to convince the Christians of the truth of the gospel that he proclaims. And you see that probably most clearly in his letter to the Galatians, right? It's just all about just this conflict. You are um, you're being led astray by a false gospel. Here's what it is. You better come back to it because it's your life. And without it, um, you've got nothing. It's worse than nothing, right? There's death. Um, but it's also taking place to some degree in the letter of the Colossians. And scholars have... Um, for a long time wondered what exactly was going on in Colossae that he would write this letter. Um, Generally, it's agreed that there is at least the beginning of the threat of uh, false teaching kind of creeping into the church uh, of some sort. Um, And it's always on the horizon anyway, so maybe he's just writing um, just in case, right? There's going to be people come in, they're probably going to say stuff like this, I've found that to be true everywhere else I've gone, so um, writing to kind of shore them up in advance, maybe. But if there was kind of this thing that folks call the Colossian heresy, which is undefined, uh, that Paul was addressing, really, I mean, it's undefined. We cannot piece it together exactly what it was um, based on uh, any history or based on... um, Paul's letter to the Colossians, you just can't put something together. Some things that he writes seems to be against uh, what are known as Judaizers, which are the Jews who are saying, if you want to be a real Christian, if you want to be really in relationship with God and with his people, you basically have to become a Jew. You have to keep all the law uh, that the Jews keep. Um, Some of the things he writes seems to be against them, maybe even most of the things in Colossians. Um, But then there's some things that kind of don't really make too much sense that it's against, uh, that it would be against Judaizers. It would, it's like maybe some kind of ascetic um, proto-Gnosticism is the technical term for it. But it's uh, basically people who think, uh, in order to grow in grace, I've got to uh, severely restrict myself, put all kinds of regulations on myself, and, um, 
and it's based on this kind of special knowledge, right? Gnosticism means knowledge that uh, that we have. It's like kind of uh, there were there were mystery cults going around in the Roman Empire that, uh, that basically here come into this dark room where nobody else is invited. It's very uh, exclusive, and we'll tell you the secrets of the universe. And if you want to be really in, then uh, you're going to be with us because we've got that special knowledge. Um, pagan philosophies, kind of stuff like that. that it seems like Paul's addressing some of that in the book of Colossians, and we'll get to those things later. But um, I actually kind of appreciate the fact that the Colossian heresy is, uh, is vague, that we can't really figure it out, because um, that's fairly well reflective of what we've got here and now in our culture is just this vague spirituality. Nobody agree, agrees on anything spiritually, um, right? But there's this vague spirituality. There's kind of a piecemeal uh, inconsistent, popular philosophies floating around that people take bits and pieces of here and there and cobble them together. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of them are characterized by legalism, kind of asceticism, those things, um, you know, in, in many different forms. But it's just vague, right? Um, people will say things like, you know, I'm not religious. I don't, I don't get into that organized stuff. Um, but I'm spiritual, you know? And then whatever that means, right? There's, uh, it's just vague. Uh, a lot of stock is placed in knowledge in our culture. I mean, there is, uh, you know, the more sophisticated you are, uh, the more likely you are to have a vague philosophy of spirituality. But, um, <clears throat> but that knowledge that, that is valued, it r really rarely ever makes sense, right? Um, it's not cohesive. It's not consistent. Um, it's not reflective of kind of a whole worldview. It really is bits and pieces of this and that. Just whatever sounds good makes sense to me, right? Um, doesn't really make sense, though. But um, So I think that's kind of what we've got reflected in uh, whatever the Colossian heresy would be that you know, Paul's addressing in his letter. It's reflective of our culture. Paul's writing to the, the new church, these new Colossian Christians, to ground them firmly in the gospel before they're led astray by things that just kind of sound good and right, don't they? Um, that just appeal to us on some uh, basic level, but that are ultimately empty. Uh, he's writing to shore them up in the gospel against things that are empty and destructive. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, maybe the Colossians, maybe Paul's foreseeing this. They might start hearing things like, if you're going to be sophisticated about your spirituality, well, you need to hear this, this special knowledge this secret mystery. If you really want to make progress, if you want to know what God is really like, then you cannot do without this, or you'll be missing something critical, whatever that is. Right? Um, but Paul knows that what God has already revealed about himself in the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient for the Christian's whole life, so he writes this letter to help the church uh, deepen, uh, send roots down further into uh, in her understanding of the gospel. Right? Um, you, know, you know the gospel. You know that gospel you've already heard, you've already believed it, you've already trusted Christ through. That is what God wants you to know about him. Now send your roots down in that. Right? You've already heard it. Get to know it more, is what he's saying. Uh, and in our passage this morning, he helps us to do just that by fixing our attention on the Son of God, on Jesus Christ, who reveals God to us. So, uh, so pay attention. I know you've already heard this probably, but this is what God wants you to know about himself. Right, so pay attention. Uh, let's pray, and we will read Colossians 1. 
Father, we thank you for not leaving us alone in the dark. This darkness is of our doing. We have darkened minds. We have darkened understanding. Our souls are dark. Apart from you, uh, we are lost. You've come into the world in your son, Jesus Christ, to seek and save that which is lost. And you have found us and you have proclaimed your truth and your grace to us. And now we have it, these many centuries later, written in your word so that we can know you, certainly. So we pray that you would grant us faith, eyes to see and ears to hear your word, so that we would be changed by it truly uh, at a deep level, the level of our minds and hearts and souls. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 1, starting in uh, verse 13. He, this is speaking of God the Father, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, sorry, uh, I'll pick on Herman real quick. Uh, He brought this up in our sermon discussion last week. I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but it's okay. It's not really just him. This this kind of thing comes up a ton, right? what I'm going to say comes up a lot frequently, very frequently. We're talking about how the gospel frees us from the grip of sin. Last week we were talking about growing in the gospel, how that is the way that you grow as a Christian, how you uh, become more sanctified, become more holy, become more like Christ, is this fixation is deepening in the gospel. And um, during the sermon discussion, we're talking about that more, how how the gospel is the way that we're to grow as Christians in holiness. And this always comes up. Once that basic principle is acknowledged, uh, the question comes up, okay, we've got that figured out, right? That makes sense as a mechanism, the gospel. uh, But what can we do practically to grow? What can we do practically? Once we've got that part figured out, then what what do we do to actually practically (laughs) grow? Uh, Got it? You know, Jesus, he's the way into the Christian life. And he's the way forward to make progress in the Christian life. But what can I do practically to move forward? Right. Um, and the example always comes up. Uh, say someone is struggling with 
an enslaving sin, struggling with something they just can't get free of, right? Uh, pornography is the best example, really. It always comes up as the example. Someone's struggling with this, and we acknowledge it's a problem with our faith, it's a problem with our heart, it's a problem with our relationship to God, our connection with God. Um, it's, it's pursuing false intimacy, it's idolatry, it's unbelief, it's self-centeredness, all this stuff wrapped up together. It's a big, it's a gospel issue, right? It's a heart issue that can be addressed by the gospel. We know we need the gospel of Christ's atoning death on the cross. We need to know true forgiveness. We need our guilt and shame to be dealt with once and for all, uh, taken off our plate. We need the full acceptance and love of God, the beauty and intimacy of a relationship with God, um, the hope of perfect freedom from all sin and glory. And all of that is going to help us in our fight against enslaving sins like pornography. Um, We need to fix our eyes on Jesus as he's revealed to us in the gospel, but but we all instinctively sense that's not quite enough, is it? Um, We just have this instinct in us that says it's not enough. We've got to take some serious practical measures, right? Um, Sign up for Online accountability, turn the, uh, the home computer screen in such a way so other people can see it, or um, better yet, just get rid of the internet at home, go back to a dumb phone and gouge out our eyes, things like that, right? I mean, it's practical things, right? Concrete. That's, that's the practical stuff. That's the concrete stuff. That's the stuff that works. Right? You got the gospel stuff, figure it out, then what, right? Um, in other words... Yeah, the gospel's supposed to help me, but but I really don't believe that that's enough. Maybe I'm afraid it's not enough. Um, that I'm missing something critical. I'm missing something important. If I'm not getting practical and unplugging things around my house. Um, it's not meant to be a commentary on the effectiveness of unplugging things around the house for your growth as a Christian. It's not... About that, I'm trying to point out how hard it is for us to actually live in light of the profession of our faith. Right? Um, to actually live as if Christ and his grace were enough for us. Um, we're tempted in so many ways to, th- to think that we need more than him. We're missing something else if we, do- if we don't have this extra thing. Right? We're missing something critical to face life. We need maybe more than Jesus to fight our sin. Um, to cope with suffering, to deal with people in conflict, to make it through a divorce, to train up our kids, right? Even to grow as spiritual people in today's world. There's got to be something a little bit more than practical stuff, right? The stuff you need to do. Um, But Paul's telling us, no, Jesus is enough. You need him. And you already have him. And you need to press deeper down into him. So then he just talks about Jesus, right? He's offered up what we looked at last week as a thanksgiving for the gospel, the way it's worked in uh, the lives of the Colossians. It's a prayer for the gospel to continue to work and bear fruit in the lives of the Colossians. And it just now uh, turns into this magnificent praise. It's like a hymn. It's like a poem. It's exalted language. It's beautiful, right? He just talks about Jesus. Um, and this is where we go wrong, because 
when we think about the gospel, even if we think about the fact that, yeah, it's the way to move forward in the Christian life, we basically just kind of give a mental tip of the hat to the, the vague concept of the gospel and think that that's supposed to be enough to feed us and strengthen us, and it's not. Right? But what Paul means by deepening in one's understanding of the gospel is that you actually need to consciously, deliberately meditate on who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. So do that. That's what Paul uh, said. He, he writes this in a way that it's, it's intended to make you slow down and just think about this, right? So let's do that. He says in verse 15, it's the Son of God he's talking about, the, the, son, of, uh, the son of his love, the Son of the Father's love. Um, he is the image of the invisible God. That's one of the most amazing statements in the whole Bible. First off, how can an invisible God have an image? You know, that's your homework. Go home. (laughs) Figure that one out and let me know next week. How can the invisible God have an image? Why is he invisible? Ask questions of the text, but, but what does it mean that Jesus, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God. Usually people, uh, when they think of this text, they draw a connection in their mind to um, what happens in Genesis 1, where God says, let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We just a couple weeks ago spent some time thinking about what that means, but basically there's a sense in which humanity is supposed to reflect God. Um, Something about God is supposed to be seen in us. In us as individuals, yes, and in us uh, in our relationships especially. Right? There's something about God that's supposed to be seen in us. That's why we're made in God's image. But the language there in Genesis 1 is that, that humanity is created in the image of God. But Paul says here of Jesus that he is the image of God. He's not just in the image. He is the image of God. And uh, we read in our Old Testament reading, Deuteronomy 5, the second commandment of the ten, uh, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, right? a false image. You shall not falsely portray me in your minds, in your hearts, in your affections. Um, you shall not Make a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven or on earth or in the water. You shall not bow to them or, uh, or serve them. We looked at that again. It was like January. Uh, we looked at that commandment. And it means that God desires to be known as he truly is, as he makes himself known, as he reveals himself to us. He has revealed himself to us for our relationship, for our worship, And he cannot stand to be misrepresented or concocted after our own imagination, right? We can't just come up with an image for God and slap it on him and pretend that's the one true God when he has revealed himself to us perfectly. So we're forbidden to come up with our own idea about him or make our own images. But the Son of God is the image of God. He perfectly reveals God to us because he is God. One true God is a triune God. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. No one has ever seen God, the Apostle John says in his gospel. No one has ever seen God, that is, the Father. He's the invisible one, right? Uh, No one's ever seen him. 
but his son is his image. And he's made himself known through his son. So we don't need to speculate about who the invisible God really is. About what the Father is really like. Because the world has seen him. He's clearly revealed in the gospel, which is found in the scriptures. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, it says next. The English word firstborn, um, those of you with children, you just kind of instinctively know what that means. It's the one who was born first, right? Uh, It just makes it sound like the Son of God maybe was the very first creature that God made during creation. Um, Heresies promote that concept. Uh, The word, uh, really the, the Greek word behind that is prototokos. It's more like a title. It's more like a, um, a title than it is just a description. It, it can have in it the sense of temporal priority. Is this the thing that came first? Um, but usually it's more it's talking about the privilege of one who is the firstborn, right? Uh, the prototokos is the one who has all the rights of the heir. That he's going to inherit it all. Um, David, King David, you know, if you know anything about him, he was not the oldest of his brothers, right? He was not the firstborn in terms of order of birth, um, but he was called the firstborn by God with regard to his kingdom. So it doesn't necessarily have to do with being born or being created first, right? Contrary to the heretical beliefs of the ancient Arians or the modern Jehovah's Witnesses who look at this, this word and would distort it and say that Jesus is a created being, that the Son of God is a created um, being. Their heresies are shot down pretty clearly in the next verse and other places in the scriptures where it says, for by him all things were created. All things were created in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Right? And, and again, John in his gospel, chapter 1, he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Right? So the Son of God, he was prior to the creation of all things. Because they were created by him and through him. He was the agent of creation. Um, and they were created for him, it says. And that's what it means when it says he's the firstborn of all creation. All creation was made for him to inherit. It was made as a gift for him. Um, All creation was meant to be a gift from the Father to the Son. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. John, in his gospel, again, calls the Son of God the Word, He's the word, and then the writer of Hebrews says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Talking about the Son of God, who we know is Jesus. You know, the, the image of the invisible God, the word of God, he's the glue for all of reality. Uh, apart from the Son, everything would disintegrate. Apart from his active upholding of the universe, it would all fall apart and disappear. Right, so the Son of God is the center of the universe. He's the beginning. He's the middle. He's the end. He's the alpha and omega, as it's put. He's the source of it all. He's the upholder of it all. He's the destiny and goal of it all. Everything. 
So you could say he's important. Um, Not only is he the center of the created universe, he's the center of the new creation. He's the focus of what God is doing to set things right for for eternity. That's what Paul's moving into now in in verse 18. He says, he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything he might be preeminent, right? Not only is he the firstborn, he's the preeminent one in all the universe. He's the preeminent one in the new creation as well. So there's a shift made in what Paul's talking about here. Previously, he's focusing on the eternal, preexistent Son of God, and now he's starting to talk about the incarnate Son of God. Um, Because this is what the gospel says, is that the the eternal, preexistent Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who always was, who was the agent of creation, he's the heir of all things, he's the glue for the whole universe, he became incarnate. He took on human flesh... He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus of Nazareth, right? He's the Son of God, come into the world also as a man. And not only, so, not only does he perfectly reveal God to us, he does it while perfectly revealing humanity to us. Because of our sin, we need salvation, we need God to forgive us, so the Son of God came to make that happen to bring about our redemption by living the perfect human life, by dying in our place, shedding his blood to the point of death on the cross, so that we who are united to him by faith will be accepted by God, even as he is accepted by God, Jesus, the man. And that is how he is the head of the body of the church. He's our human leader. He's our human leader. He's our human king. He's our human representative in heaven, his human life is the source and the destiny of our human life in God's presence. Jesus is the first one of us. He's the beginning, right? He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one of us to be raised from the dead and given an immortal, perfect human body. And so N.T. Wright says in his commentary on Colossians, which is great, a little, little commentary, you should get it. It is only in Jesus Christ that we fully understand what divinity and humanity really mean. Jesus fulfills the purposes which God had marked out both for himself and for humanity. As the Son of God... Jesus reveals God to us for our relationship. Everything that he shows us is good news. As divine, he's the center of the universe. He's the source and goal of everything. And as a human, like us, except without sin, um, as a human, he is the center of what God is doing in the world to make all things new, to set all things right, to bring eternal life out of this world of death. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, uh, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul could have just said, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But he emphatically said, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Because with exalted language, he is extolling the sufficiency of Christ. 
the magnificence of Christ, the supremacy and preeminence of Jesus, the Son of God, in every way. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. All the fullness of God was pleased to reconcile all things to God through Jesus. All the fullness of God not only did these things, he took pleasure in doing these things. He was pleased to dwell in him. He was pleased to reconcile all things through Christ. All the fullness of God, as seen in Jesus' person and work, is all the fullness of a delighted God who sought reconciliation with you, who sought peace with you. Even though you're his enemy, you don't deserve it. He sought peace with you, even though it meant his son's death for you. And not just with you, but with all of us, and not just with all of us, indeed to reconcile all things to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. He's fixing everything that we broke in our rebellion against him. He's putting it all back into its proper order and relationship to him. He's making all things work the way that they're supposed to work again. He'll do that once and for all when Jesus returns. But the Colossians were afraid they were missing something. If they just stuck with this simple gospel about Jesus, kind of obviously applies to our salvation, <clears throat> um, the gospel we'd already heard, we're missing something, right? We've always got this sense that we're missing something. You and I are often afraid that we lack something that we need for our life. Maybe we just feel this deep, unsettled urge to do more religious things, to better ourselves, to make ourselves more presentable in God's sight. We've got to do those things or else we can't come to church. We've got to do those things or else we can't come to communion. We're missing something here. There's a lack. I've got more need. Or maybe we just feel like if we could just get one more luxury item in our lives, we'd finally feel fulfilled. Right? If I can only secure this or that in my life, if I can only get to the bottom of this apparent conspiracy and have the right knowledge in life, or if I can only get so much money in my bank accounts, if I can only get this person to love me romantically, if I can only figure out, read the right books or whatever it is, to how to, how to train my kids up so I've done right by them, if I can only figure out how to get respect that I think I deserve, then I'll be content. Whatever it is I'm missing, I've got to get that. If I can only get that, then I'll have it, right? Then I'll have it all. There's always something nagging us that we have this sense of need, sense of lack, sense of want. I mean, isn't there? If you know Jesus Christ through the gospel, if you have a relationship with him as he's revealed to you in the scriptures, if you trust him, how could you ever say you need anything else for any reason? You have the Son of God, and in him you have the source of the universe, the center of the universe, the destiny of the universe. In him you have the resurrection, you have the new creation, in him you have all things. All things. Karl Barth says in a quote that's in the beginning of the bulletin, to know Jesus Christ in truth means to know no more and no less than all things, even man, oneself, the cosmos, and the world. The truth of Jesus Christ is not one truth among others. It is the truth, the universal truth that creates all truth as surely as it is the truth of God for in Jesus Christ, God has created all things. To know him is to know all. To have him is to have all. 
That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about that for the rest of your life. Amen. Now let's pray. Lord Jesus, your name is sweet on our lips. And it is a fire in our hearts. And it is clarity in our minds. We pray that you would keep our hearts by your Holy Spirit fixed on you so that we would have no sense of lack or need. We have you, and we're thankful. We don't deserve you, but you've given yourself to us out of love and out of the joy that was set before you. You died for us. You rose again from the dead for us to prepare a place for us in heaven forever. Help us to meditate on you and on your gospel for our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.